Today I'd like to share my personal insights from my first 10-day Vipassana course retreat. If you've never heard of Vipassana, it's typically a 10-day meditation course. And you go to a camp and there are all the facilities and things you need in order to make your way through 10 days without talking. During those 10 days, you learn about the technique, the meditation technique of Vipassana. It's quite on trend at the moment. There are lots of testimonies of people who've done the course online, lots of videos of people talking about it. And there's more and more press these days. And I had known a few people personally who had done the course before I did it and was quite interested in it for quite a while before I actually took the leap to go ahead and go for it. And the first insight I'd like to share was that change in me of noticing how something became normal once I became involved in the community. So at first you might say, wow, 10 days without talking. How could you do that? That sounds outrageous. That sounds so weird. I don't think I could do that. But then when you go along to the camp and you see everyone else doing it and you hear about all these other people that have done it, it just becomes sort of normal. And all the progress that I made in my consciousness and in my mind and in my body was placed into a context where that was pretty standard stuff. So typically, if you talk to someone about consciousness progress, that's such a foreign term. It's such a strange idea. You have to explain the whole concept to them. But in the community of the Vipassana meditation course, that's pretty standard stuff. It's almost like if you're learning to play the piano, you might be on grade two. So you turn up for your lesson and you're learning grade two pieces. And you might have a little bit of an idea of what a grade three piece sounds like. And you've already had some experience in the difference between grade one and grade two, because you can see that your grade two pieces are more complicated, they're more challenging than your grade one pieces. Now, sometimes you might turn up to your music lesson early and you'll hear someone who is at grade five playing their music before your lesson. You might think, wow, listen to that amazing piano music. I can't imagine what it's like to play that. I don't know how I'm going to get good enough to play that. I'm only on grade two. And that's exactly the same sort of proportion as what's happening at this Vipassana retreat. The other thing is that people have always played through these grades of piano music. You're not special for doing grade one or grade two. You're not the first person to have done that. Hundreds, if not thousands of kids have learnt these exact same pieces, these exact same progressions of music skill. And so this idea of it not being so special to you became really obvious to me when I started doing the Vipassana course. The other broad insight that I wanted to share was that these insights came to me under my own conditions and from my own personal conditions. So they came out of my own processes, my own internal processes, which meant that they stayed with me. So I did this course more than six months ago, and everything that I'm sharing with you today, I'm sharing off the top of my head, which means that it stayed with me. It's become a concrete thing that I've been able to bounce on and build on 
and I've been able to recall over and over again in varying degrees of significance. So it's not all happy days. It's very challenging to complete the Vipassana course, and there are a lot of different things that can come up which will confront you, such as your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own desires. I started thinking about things that I wanted to do. I started thinking about places I wanted to be. And these were very strong feelings. These were very deep feelings. And eventually, I did end up seeing how they were changing and how they were developing and how I thought about something that I wanted really hard for a long time. But then I thought it through and then I really overcame it or I sort of became tired with that thought. And that then gave rise to another desire, a deeper desire. And in a sense, it meant that I ended up wanting more and more stuff, more and more desires kept on growing and they just became expanding and expanding and becoming more and more difficult to contend with until eventually it sort of evened out because I could see that my desires were changing so often that they were very illusionary, they were very elusive, they were very fluffy. So usually what we're going on or what we're acting upon is this idea of our desire. We come up with an idea and then we go after it. And then that process turns into a bit of a feedback two-way street so that our action attempts to go after our desires will give us feedback about how successful we are and how much it works or how it doesn't work or how we go about doing that. And then our desires will change. Our picture of what we really want changes. And then we'll change our behaviors. And this is what we call just being on the wheel of life. If you see a mouse in a cage running on a wheel, going around and around and again, it's just chasing, chasing its tail. This is the usual way we operate with our desire, but by sitting on a cushion and letting the picture of desire have free reign and really letting it out of the cage and go all over the place, it's almost like you let an animal out of the cage. It goes crazy. It goes berserk. It's trying to find its way. It wants to do all these things. It wants it's free. It's trying to defend itself. And there's all these things that are bouncing around with it. But eventually, it calms down. It says, well, okay, I can see what's going on. It's like a bull out of the gate. If you let a bull out of the gate at, with a bull riding festival, it's going to go completely nuts. But eventually it does actually stop, usually when it's kicked off the rider. <laughs> so that's an analogy that you can use to help understand desire and the process of working through desire. So you do need to work through the different things that you have and see how much it changes in order for it to smooth out, for it to flatten down. I also got really large amounts of pain in my legs during this course. This was especially during the strong determined sitting sessions. And I think the term strong determined sitting is a bit misleading. It really should be called something more like strong submission sitting. Now what strong determined sitting is, if you've never heard of it, is sitting like a statue or still as a Buddha. So you cross your legs, you sit down, 
and you do not move no matter what. Even if you get an itch on your nose, even if there's a cramp in your knee or elbow or anything, you must sit 100% still. The reason we do this during meditation is because we're trying to turn down the volume of the body and turn up the volume of the internal situation. So usually we're always stuck, focused on our external world, how our body is moving in relation to the external world. But when you stop everything and you create a silence or you turn the volume down to zero or you switch off the external world, also by closing your eyes, of course, then the internal world, which is your feelings and your thoughts, comes up, the volume comes up, you are able to draw more attention to it. So when you sit perfectly still, you're turning the volume down of the external world and you're turning up the volume of the internal world, which is your thoughts and your feelings. And it can be quite painful, it can be quite frustrating because you find yourself forcing yourself to sit still. You're becoming a boss over yourself. You're becoming a higher power over yourself. And this becomes very jarring because there's a, there's a tension between the part of you that has the feeling and the part of you that wants to sit still. And these two forces can come up against each other and hit into each other. When really the secret to strong determined sitting is submitting to the feeling. It means allowing the feeling to happen, accepting the feeling to happen. And this is the process I took on one of my longest stretches of strong determined sitting. So it was a, I started an hour and a half before a one hour session. So it was in, in total, it was two and a half hours of sitting and I was able to make it for about one hour and 50 minutes of strong determined sitting and then I moved myself a little bit and then I continued to the end of the two and a half hours just by sitting. So that was my personal record and it's funny how I become so full of myself and I become on this spiritual highbrow of being proud of how long I could last on strong determined sitting like it's a badge of honor which is completely not the point at all it's not meant to be any sort of thing that you should parade around the whole point of it is to have your own internal progress there's no competition between people in meditation circles it's all about your own progress and there's no use in being able to brag about the certain things that you've done. But in that two and a half hour session that I did, which was the peak of my 10 day experience, I was able to let go and force myself in a sense to accept whatever comes. And it becomes a little bit paradoxical because you're telling yourself to accept anything, accept anything, Embrace the feeling, embrace the feeling, these sorts of thoughts over and over again, and you're trying to grind it away. But then you can see that there's a part of you telling you to do that. And that part of you telling you to do that also needs to submit. You also need to calm down. You also need to tell that part to say, stop telling me what to do. And so there's this point 
in the back of my mind, which is moving, moving backwards and backwards and backwards, deeper and deeper, and saying more and more about letting go, stop that, just let that happen, release your grip. And eventually what happens is it unfolds and it bursts and you move into these higher states of feeling and thought. And that sort of brings me to another one of my insights, which is the difference between thinking and experiencing. Now, this is on the surface quite a generic insight. If you say to an average person, do you know the difference between thinking and feeling? They might sort of look at you a bit funny and say, yeah, I could probably see how there's something there. I could probably have a bit of an idea of it. I could definitely say something to that answer. Yeah, thoughts are in your heads and your feeling is in your body. But on this retreat, I was able to get a hard, cold, clear as day experience of it. I was able to get the feeling or the, well, we really need a higher word. We need feeling and thinking, and then maybe our higher word would be experiencing. So we experience feeling and we experience thinking. And that's that third point that opens up when you can really clearly see what thinking is. There are a whole bunch of characteristics that are exclusive to thinking. And there are a whole bunch of characteristics which are exclusive to feeling. And usually, all these characteristics are meshed together. They're fluffy, they're all in this big ball of knots which mold in and out of each other. But on this retreat, I was able to flick between the two. I would go up into thinking and then sort of down into feeling. It wasn't entirely a location thing, although location, I think, can help with understanding that insight, but it's an experiencing thing. I could experience thinking and experience feeling. And the additional insight that came from this was that I could actually learn the difference between the qualities of my total existence. So we can say this, the grand phenomenological experience. So if we say, right now, you are in reality... There's no escaping reality. You've always been 100% in reality. Now, within that sphere, there are certain distinctions which you can make. For example, you can say you can see things out your eyes. You can think things in your head. You can have words in your head. You can have pictures in your head. You can have an interaction with a person. You can have an emotion. You can have certain actions. You can be moving with your body in certain ways. So right there, we've got four or five different qualities of things that are within the grand total of reality, your phenomenological experience. And the insight for me, which came to me on this Vipassana retreat, was that I could sit down and learn to distinguish the two such as the difference between thinking and feeling. And that insight meant that I could see the path of breaking down the distinctions and learning how 
to notice them in a more and more strong way. So it meant that learning the insight of the difference between thinking and feeling was not something that you do once. It's something that you do and you can improve and you can strengthen. And that progress became clear to me. It was like I was learning that there were different grades in the piano learning process. It's like learning, if you learn only one grade, you might think that first grade is all there is. And once you've learned it, you can play the piano. Can you play the piano or can you not play the piano? Well, if you can play the piano, you can play grade one. And then you learn grade two. And then you might think, well, are you good at piano or are you bad at piano? And then you can say, well, I've done grade two, so I'm good at piano. And then you have to learn grade three. And by the time you get to grade three or grade four, then you're starting to see, well, how many grades does it go? And then the, the teacher might say, well, there's nine grades. And then you can say, well, I've got a long way to go, but I haven't finished my studies. And you could see how even after the ninth grade, probably usually by the time you get to the ninth grade, you've had the insight that learning is a never-ending, expanding horizon. It's very hard to have that insight when you're talking about your phenomenological experience of reality because there's so many different grades and they're so subtle that most people don't even learn the first grade, let alone the second or the third, to have the insight that there's a never-ending path, an ever-expanding horizon, and always there's more and more things to learn. There are more distinctions to make. There are more strengths that you can have. There are more depths that you can have, even to the things that you've already learnt. So that was a big insight for me. Now, there is another thing which is quite big on doing a meditation retreat, which is the content of your thought. Now, usually what you're meant to be doing is following the technique, which means silent mind and concentration. So the concentration technique that I was taught I perfectly understood well enough throughout the 10-day course. But there was a difference between understanding and being able to do it. By the end of the 10-day course, I had improved my concentration from about 2 seconds all the way up to about 6 seconds. So it had taken me 10 days to have that much of an improvement in my concentration. And it is quite frustrating because it's like taking the most simple thing that you can imagine to do. So it's breathing. So this is, this is really, I can't think of anything more easy to do for a human being than to breathe. So you're meant to sit on a cushion and notice your breathing. And this course has a way of showing you how inadequate you are, how little control you have over your processes, your life, your mind, or anything that's happening in your life. It really does expose a core, fundamental, foundational aspect of what it is that you're doing with your life. 
So we all, to varying degrees, feel like we have control over our lives. Without getting into a philosophical debate about free will, we all have this sense of autonomy. It's all part of our, it's at least a part of our composition, our personal composition. So by exposing how little autonomy you really have, you can actually start to make way into fixing that and making progress on that. Because you can only make progress on problems which you're aware of. You can only make plans to rectify things that are wrong if you know they are wrong. You can only improve inadequacies if you know that there is a lacking somewhere. And that's really the pain of meditation. That's the dark side of meditation. It's coming into and confronting the things that are bad about you and lacking in you. And it's not always the case that you remember that this is a good thing. It's not always the case that you see it as a positive thing. It is very easy to get lost. It is very easy to get yourself tangled up. One of the things they mention during the instructions is that you shouldn't get too tangled up. You shouldn't get lost. If you feel yourself going down a rabbit hole, you should go and speak to the teacher. And I didn't find myself in that situation on this camp because I was determined to follow the rules and follow the technique as closely as I could. Now, what I was going to mention before about content was what happens when you're learning to concentrate is different things come up that are not just desires in your life. So desire is only one part of it. The other part of it is trying to process what's already happened. So things that have been happening to you in your life will come up. And they'll come up in different ways. And they'll come up with varying degrees of emotion attached to them. And some people that I talked to at the end had very different ideas about what that meant and what the significance of that was. So some people going into it expected to have childhood traumas coming up or these dark secrets coming up or these really horrible memories come up of trauma and they didn't come up. They found that it wasn't that difficult and they found that it was really quite simple. So everyone's quite different and you can make the argument that these people weren't digging deep enough. You can say that they were not really finding their true origins or processing their actual developmental years. But it's hard to say. It's, it's a slippery slope to say that someone has to experience trauma in order to have spiritual growth. That's a dangerous game to play. And I think the answer for this one is that Vipassana as a technique is not specifically designed to process the past. It's not contemplation. It's not deep thinking. It's not processing events. It's not changing scripts. It's not changing personality. It's more about awareness. It's more about the tools of awareness and specifically awareness of your mind and awareness of your bodily feeling. So there's no direct advice that the Vipassana teacher gives you about how to process the past or even how to contemplate. 
So contemplation would be embracing the content of thought. So this would be saying, okay, I'm going to think now. I'm going to allow myself to have thoughts. And I might generate different ideas about the past, my experiences, or I might generate different ideas about the knowledge that I've had, the different books that I've read, or the different philosophies that I've had, or the different psychologies that I've understood. This is all in the realm of contemplation. This is all about thought. This is really embracing thought and changing it around, putting it up and down, trying to make it more juicy and refining it, and really making those words that are in your head insightful and wise and profound and meaningful and all those wonderful things. But all that is just contemplation. That's all mind. And all mind really doesn't have anything to do with Vipassana. Vipassana is specifically the ability to listen to the mind as well as other things. It's awareness. It's witnessing. It's differentiating between the different points and qualities and characteristics of your phenomenological experience, your grand experience of reality. So if you go to your teacher on the Vipassana course and you start bringing up specific content issues such as childhood issues or ideas or thoughts or wisdom or any of those sorts of things which are concerned with the content of mind, they'll simply tell you to go back to concentration. They'll send you back to the basics and let you get into the technique of becoming aware and expanding your consciousness. So there was another significant moment for me on this 10-day course. This was probably the most significant insight that I had throughout the entire 10-day course. And what had started happening was what I call now consciousness-expanding experiences. And the first time this happened was when I was sitting outside the meditation hall waiting for a session to start, and I was looking at some trees. My point of attention, my eyes were moving over the leaves and moving around. They were slightly flowing in the, in the breeze. I could see with more clarity, with more crispness, the details on each leaf, the movement, the different angles, the different colors, the play of lights and the shadows bouncing off them. Sometimes they'd shimmer and I could see a wave of wind flow through them. And the richness of opening up to that experience through my eyes was noticeably different. It was noticeably more powerful. And there was a certain sort of feeling that came with it. It was hard to say what sort of feeling it was. It's very subtle and yet somehow it's also very powerful. And I kept moving my eyes around and around. It seemed like the point at which I was looking was larger. And the blurred edges around my sight was smaller. 
My mind was taking in more. My perceptions were taking in more. And this was a perception-expanding experience, and they started happening more and more frequently throughout the course until it really, it really culminated in this one point when I had breakfast. So this was about day seven. And I had breakfast, and what happened was the same consciousness expansion experience happened while I was having breakfast. So I, would, I, I scooped the porridge up on my spoon, and then I looked at the, the mouthful that I was about to have in the same way that I was looking at those trees. And what I saw was these huge mountains, these valleys, these peaks, these angles, these giant things, these, this whole entire landscape that was the size of my whole vision, all on this tiny spoon. And it was like I was having this huge, epic vision of porridge on the end of my spoon. And then, this is what really set me over the edge. I ate that spoon of porridge. I put it in my mouth. And I could feel it go around in my mouth, down into my throat, going through into my stomach. And as I kept eating, I kept watching, I kept putting this porridge into my, into my stomach, into my mouth. I could feel it going through my body and I could feel my processes, my digestive system waking up. I could feel it coming into action. And then the second piece of breakfast that I had was an apple. And by this time, I'm really starting to feel awake. I'm really starting to feel a certain buzz. And once I had finished eating that apple, approximately four minutes after, I had this huge peak I had an absolute burst through my whole body. And this was amazing. This was just such an insight to see that the, the most bland, like porridge and an apple, that's got to be the most bland breakfast ever, I think. Really, conventionally speaking, there's nothing more simple than porridge and an apple. And yet this ability to see it and appreciate it and really look at it and really feel how it affected my body was able to make it so much more magical and make it so much more alive and really make it into this huge experience in this huge event. Usually when you're sitting on a cushion for 10 days and not talking, having a meal becomes an event. It automatically becomes this thing anyway. But if you're also having these small, subtle, consciousness-expanding experiences and combining those together, then it really becomes the event of the day. It really becomes this peak of the day. And this was such a powerful experience. It's hard for me to really say what sort of impact it had on me. But it was also subtle. So it's not something that is really... It's not really as powerful as you'd think as like a watching a blockbuster movie. So if you go to the movies and the volume is really loud and you're eating your popcorn and you're drinking your, 
your fizzy drinks, or you might be having ice cream, and there's all these explosions on the screen, there's all these visual visual, uh, effects, you can say, well, that movie is a powerful experience. But eating an apple and porridge is not a powerful experience in that way. It's a powerful experience in the impact that it has on you. It's a powerful experience in the significance of it. Now, it is possible to go to a movie with all those visual effects and that loud volume and all that junk food and to sort of just be like, eh, you know, I wasn't that into it. Eh, it wasn't that interesting. I didn't really, yeah, I sort of, it was okay, that sort of thing. So, intensity is not indicative of the external world. Intensity is really in the matter of how you experience different things in the external world. And that was part of the insight that came to me when I was eating this apple and this bowl of porridge. And yet, there was a deeper insight. And this was the number one insight that I took away from the 10-day course, which was that if eating... A bowl of porridge and an apple is meant to feel like that. There's a good chance that I have never eaten a meal in my life properly. I've never really experienced eating the way I should experience eating. And this was so shocking and so hard for me to take on. Because it meant that everything in my life that I've experienced up until that point, I haven't fully experienced. It's like I haven't even lived. I haven't even been someone who's come into the world at all. But thank goodness I was able to experience this and learn about this and see the difference and learn what it means to see the path, to learn that there are different grades when you learn piano, to learn that there are different processes that you can go through to improve these inadequacies. This is why Vipassana teaches a technique. It teaches a thing that will take you through all the different levels, all the different grades of piano music, all the different stages. You can take it with you all the way to the highest heights. So on the 10th day, we were allowed to do some talking amongst ourselves I was able to meet many people. I met lots of people, just about everyone there I spoke to at some point. One thing that was shocking to me was how quickly people just took up speaking again. Some people just started raving about all sorts of things. And they were very forceful as well. They weren't very tender. They weren't as tender as I was feeling. I was quite, I was quite scared to start talking again at first. And there was all sorts of people. There was 
older guys, younger guys, and the girls who were separated from from us stayed on their side mostly. But some of the girls came and spoke to us. And there was lots of foreigners, lots of people traveling from Europe. Uh, there were musicians, some Indians, made great friends with some Indians. And all sorts of people. There were business people, there were artists, there were people who didn't have jobs. So it was a pretty good mix of different people. And I made some great friends there, some really wonderful people, because everyone's quite open, everyone's quite happy, and we've all shared this experience together. So you've been sitting on a cushion in silence for 10 days next to someone. It's quite funny to start having a conversation with them. (laughs) So the insight of how different people were when they actually started talking and how there seemed to be such an obvious difference between what I was thinking. It's a shocking difference between what I thought and the actual interactions that I had with people. So it's hard for me to really say what I thought about everyone. But the overall insight was that difference between interacting with people socially and my own inner world. So it was good to see those two things very closely to one another and see that contrast. So, the closing question is, would I do it again? Of course, I would do it again. In fact, I am booked in to do it again in a couple of weeks, so that will be interesting. Round two, would I recommend it to other people? Well, it does come with a warning, because it's not for the faint of heart. You do, I think, need to have a little bit of a want to learn about meditation and emotion and your mind. And not everyone is prone to that. It is quite a challenge. It is quite difficult. So you do have to have some guts to do this sort of thing. But of course, I would recommend it to anyone who feels that they are ready for it because it's a wonderful technique. It's an amazingly insightful experience to have and you can have all sorts of things happen now my experience of the 10-day course is not indicative of what you will experience we are totally different people and there are all sorts of things that happen on this course all sorts of insights or misdemeanors that people have so don't go into it expecting to have the same sorts of things that i have had happened to me. So we could even say that by listening to me and by having this report, this Vipassana retreat report put into your mind, it's actually making you less likely to have your own insights because you're now constricted by these ideas that I've given you about what it would be like. It would be much better just to go in it, go at it with your own expectations or even without any expectations and being open to whatever happens the more open you can be the better off you'll be the more likely you'll be to learn from it and the final insight that i like to share is that all these insights were solid they stayed with me i can remember them so they might not have been the most profound experiences they might not have been the most crazy and deep experiences but they were incremental and they were things that have stuck with me 
So it is possible to have incredibly good ideas. Sometimes we have incredibly insightful thoughts, but they're fleeting. They don't come back and we completely forget them. But here, by doing the course and really dedicating 10 days to the technique, I could clearly see what it meant to make progress. So I'd be happy to answer any other questions if you have. Feel free to contact me. I love talking about these things. And thanks very much for tuning in. That's all I have to say for now.